From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 247 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and good friend, John Sakari. John, how are you today? Very good, Michael. Hope you are doing well as well. I am doing well, though I got caught. <laughs> it, it's supposed to rain here and, and snow coming close to here, but not really? too close on Thursday. And I went out. I had to refill the bird feeders right before we recorded. And a freak storm came through. It is raining. It is super windy and and all that. And I thought that was even on- predicted. Emphasis on the word soup because super soup because those bird feeders usually when it rains ah it ruins some of the seeds. Yeah, I have covers over them, so it it it'll take care of some of them. But but and we are recording on on Mardi Gras, so um so John, I assume you have earned a lot of beads today in celebration. (laughs) You know the the fate the fantasy. Oh my God, yes, they've been throwing them to me a lot all day. In reality, none. Zero. <laughs> I have a whole bunch of bees from when I went to New Orleans. I, I bought some and, and I would give them out and all that. So I have them out as decoration and I have a little, little Mickey and Minnie Mardi Gras, like Beanie Baby kind of things. So I put those out as decoration. And oh, then I don't great. know where I got, I think it was some party. It might have been at work years ago, little Mardi Gras, um, masks that, you know, you hold. You know, oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. like party yeah, masks correct. on a stick. So I have those out as a decoration kind of thing. So I'm glad you you observe it in some way. Yes. I always say every year I'm going to order a king cake from somewhere and then I always forget. It's I've never really had a king way. cake. I think there are certain Louisiana bakeries that, you know, send them out that are, if you ask somebody from Louisiana, they'll tell you which one you're supposed to get. Mm-hmm. That's what I've heard. So, but um, I'll do it next year. But, um, but John, you've been on several cruises. So, which one would you say are, are there any ones that are, are really memorable for you? Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, all the Disney ones are always memorable. Mm-hmm. The Disney ones really, you know, that's the style that I like. The shows, the food, not just the Disney. You know, you can not have Disney characters. I mean, it's not that it's all characters. Just the quality. Um, the Disney cruises are great. I would say the fantasy and the dream, the dream itself. Those are my two favorite ships. Yeah. We went, uh, for, for Carol and I, the probably our most memorable Disney cruise, I think was pro- our first one. We went through the Panama Canal on the magic. So the magic wow. has always been my favorite ship because yeah. we spent the most time on it. It wasn't the very first Panama Canal cruise. So they worked out some of the issues that they had with like distributing the pins and all of that, because before you had to wait in lines, 
and everything and it was a mess it was an it was a horrible mess so then we you know they they had it where you could if you wanted the, the pins were delivered to your room you could pre-order them and they were delivered to your room rather than people waiting in line you know down and and sleeping in the corridors and all that and then of course after our cruise they went back to the old way and I never understood it, but, and then another more memorable one for us is when we went on, um, our very first cruise where we took the kids. It was Princess. We went to, uh, Alaska on the Sea Princess, which I think has been scrapped or sold or something. It's not the current Sea Princess. It's so it's a smaller ship by today's standards. And we, we were a young family, so we couldn't afford a, a big, stateroom so we 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 didn't quite know how small they could get we got a quad we walked in i was the first one to walk in because i had the bags (laughs) i burst out laughing the minute i opened the door and carol said what i said oh you're not going to believe these rooms it was basically two bunk beds it would have been like steerage on the titanic or something that's so funny it was two bunk beds with a, a, you know, with very little space in between. And then there was a desk on one side, a chair and a stand on the other. And the, the bathroom was, I think, slightly larger than, than one on an airplane. Uh, I'm sure and- it's smaller than the Disney ones, but I felt that the first time I saw the Disney, you know, just because that was my first cruise. I thought, oh, wow. oh no, this is way smaller, way smaller. The Disney staterooms are luxurious and huge compared to this. So, and it was it was ocean view because we couldn't afford a, uh, you know, a, a veranda. So, but um, that was the that was the last time. Then, then from then on, it was always we got a separate room for the kids because we had a little more money the next time we took them, and and Princess had deals. And uh, we and we always got a balcony, you know, veranda, but but we can probably agree on which has been the happiest cruise we've sailed on, and that is what we're going to talk about today: the history of Walt Disney's "It's a Small World." One now, of my favorite. Pardon me. One of I, my favorites. One of my favorites as well. So, whenever I want to be cheered up at a park, I always go on "It's a Small World." And usually the lines move quickly, which is nice. Before I moved to Florida, when I lived in New York and took my yearly trip to Disney, Mm -hmm. that would have to be my first ride in the Magic Kingdom because the dolls were welcoming me to my vacation. Oh, that's wonderful. Went with that. (laughs) Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, that's it's always one of my must do attractions. Sometimes I sometimes I'll do it multiple times just because I enjoy it so much. Now, in February 1963, an official from the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, we know it better as UNICEF, approached Joe Fowler, who was the director of Disneyland Operations, and he asked if WED, which was Imagineering, uh, if they could build them a ride for the 1964-65 New York World's Fair, which was less than 12 months away. Fowler told them no, because they were already working on three very complex shows, which were great moments with Mr. Lincoln for the state of Illinois, the Carousel Theater of Progress for General Electric, and Ford's Magic Skyway, and they just couldn't handle another one. Well, word got back to Walt Disney, 
that uh, that Joe Fowler had said no, and he reminded Fowler who made the decisions. I'm the one who makes the decisions around here, Walt allegedly roared. So you call the Pepsi people back now and tell them that we'll do their damned UNICEF pavilion. Wow. Yeah. On February 15th, Walt committed to the UNICEF project and with very little time to spare, he turned to his already overworked staff and said, there's one more piece of real estate left at the fair and we can have it if we want it. Pepsi-Cola is willing to sponsor whatever we do and it'll be a salute to UNICEF. I've got an idea for a little boat ride. Walt had long talked about doing an attraction featuring animated dolls representing the children of the world, all singing in harmony and peace, and he quickly called a series of story sessions to develop this concept. Imagineer Rolly Crump said, That's how it went from the day Walt had said, I've got an idea for a boat ride to the opening of It's a Small World nine months later. We didn't have time to think this out. We designed it, built it, and installed it in nine months. And that included Walt's approval before we shipped it to New York. Can you imagine today designing from scratch and then building it and shipping it across country, a full attraction with like 300 animated dolls in nine months? Uh, no. It, it, today it would have took seven years. Yeah. Yeah, it's remarkable. And they were working on three other attractions, all using new technology. All right. Now, in fairness, the It's a Small World that we see in the parks, was it about as large as that at the World's Fair or was it half the It was smaller. It was smaller at the World's Fair. And we'll get into that, how it was enlarged when it was moved to Disneyland. So Walt turned to Disney artist and Imagineer Mark Davis for some ideas, but he was not satisfied with the results. Crump said, Mark Davis did a really nice rendering, but when Walt looked at it, he smiled, turned to Dick Irvine and said, what's Mary Blair doing? Artist Mary Blair had worked on the Christmas sequence in the Three Caballeros, creating a series of still images which depicted a traditional Mexican Christmas observance enacted by children, all of whom were drawn in Mary's distinctive rounded style. And Walt felt her unique style captured much of the same spirit he was seeking for his boat ride. That's one of my favorite sequences, that Christmas scene in that film. Crumpet suggested that Walt liked the two-dimensional style she was using when doing her little golden books. Mary chose that style of positive and negative shapes, and she went to a new level with her work on Small World. Preliminary ideas were put together and flown out to Pepsi's headquarters in New York for a presentation. Pepsi's board of directors watched with a detached interest as they were told of the preliminary plans for the happiest cruise that ever sailed. When the presentation was finished, most of the board members reacted in a negative manner, asking such questions as, why do we need this Mickey Mouse thing? Wow. The reaction illustrates why Pepsi approached Disney so late in the game. Uh, They couldn't get to first base with any designer or anything, recalled Bob Gurr. Finally, a year after they should have started, they approached us. 
Joan Crawford, the film actress, was on the board of directors for Pepsi. She knew that Disney was working on three pavilions, so it was under her suggestion that Pepsi approached Disney. It was only about 10 months from the opening of the fair, and Pepsi's board of directors was about to make the same mistake it had made with the previous designers. They were going to derail the concept. Joan Crawford had seen enough. She stood up, and with the talents acquired from years of playing leading ladies in Hollywood, she emphatically informed the board that we are going to do this. And I heard that in her voice. <laughs> I bet. I know. I'm, I, I picture her because I've seen so many of her films, how she must have dramatically stood up, probably yep. hands on the desk, looking <laughs> at exactly. them all with her eyes, just staring them down with her dramatic voice saying that. That's exactly. With her the hair up. Her hair, <laughs> yep. You know how she wore it up? Yeah. And, and somehow I imagine her wearing gloves. Me too. too. Yeah. Black gloves. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. The theme of the attraction was purposefully unsophisticated. No story, no sales pitch, no strong message would be pushed at the audience. Walt didn't want any dramatic lighting, lounge sound effects, or humor at someone's expense. After boarding the attraction, riders would experience 300 inoffensive, interchangeable figures of children and toys from around the world in pleasantly stylized cultural surroundings. Most importantly, there would be a sense of innocence found in small children everywhere. Mary Blair was put in charge of the overall design of the attraction and the color styling. Campbell and Coates assisted with the initial show design of the sets. And that's Colin Campbell and Claude Coates, of course, from Imagineering. Crump and Jack Fergies worked from Blair's paintings and collages to create the three-dimensional set pieces and toys. Alice Davis designed the costumes, and her husband, Mark, did the sketches of the figures he called rubberheads. It was up to Blaine Gibson to transform all this two-dimensional art into three-dimensional figures. It was not easy. Gibson struggled with Blair's very specific style, but he inevitably caught the essence of her concepts and Mark Davis's drawings. Mostly stationary three-dimensional doll figurines, Uniform in shape and motion would communicate their origins with costumes by the language in which they sang and with the toys and instruments in their hands. As the figures were being sculpted, Alice Davis began to design the costumes and asked Walt for the costume's budget. Walt raised an eyebrow and said, I have a building over there filled with bookkeepers that find the money. I want the most beautiful costumes every little girl, no matter what age she is, would love to have to play with. So you make the most beautiful costumes you can make. The original idea was to have each set of dolls sing the national anthem of their country as guests floated past. It did not work. An early test on the Disney studio lot proved this idea was a complete disaster. All of the national anthems sung simultaneously meant the songs drowned each other out, or worse than that, bled together, making this a cacophony. 
Walt called in his studio composers, Richard and Robert Sherman, and told them, what we need is a simple little round delay, you know, like row, row, row your boat. The brothers gave it some thought, and Richard Sherman said, there was a big problem here, and it really had to do with the children in the show. Everybody knows the kids grow into adults, and it's adults that keep getting the world messed up. But in the small world of children, everybody loves each other. Then we thought of a concept. Why can't we all just be together? We only have one world to live on. Their first attempt, It's a Small World, came easily. Too easily, the brothers thought. (laughs) Through two feverish weeks of writing, they produced two additional songs. Ultimately, Walt approved the first with his customary, that'll work. Wouldn't you love to hear the other two songs? I know. I always wonder if they use them for something else. Right? Yeah. I'd love to be a fly they, on the wall there. They tended to reuse songs that they wrote for one film would get put in another film. Like, you know, songs they'd written for Mary Poppins ended up in um, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Yep. You know, so... Musician Bobby Hammock was called in to interpret the Sherman Brothers' composition in the musical styles of the countries depicted. Soon, 29 different international orchestrations, plus a grand finale, two full renditions for the cue, and children's vocals in six languages was recorded. The theme song, It's a Small World, would become one of the most recorded songs in history. Throughout the attraction, the song is played in the style and language specific to each culture on display as the boats pass by. Small World used an innovative ride system, which would, of course, find its way back to Disneyland. The visitors boarded small, flat-bottomed boats and cruised through the show building along a winding canal of water. In contrast to the noisy, low-capacity dark rides at Disneyland, the small world boats were quiet, reliable, and because each could carry nearly two dozen people, provided an extremely high hourly guest capacity. There was one overlooked detail. The 53 colorful vessels sailing the attraction's seven seaways were called Fanta Sea Boats. So that's spelled F-A-N-T-A, capital S-E-A. So they were called Fantasy Boats in promotional materials. But after it was learned that Fanta was the name of a division <sighs> of the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> the I less, just got it. Yeah, the less whimsical description, 15 passenger boats was quickly used. <laughs> that's like... um they, you know, when they were building Epcot Center and they wanted to have a Matterhorn uh, attraction, it over, oh. but over for Japan, and it wanted to be Mount Fuji, but Kodak said no because of the name Fuji. Isn't that funny? It, yeah, I didn't yeah. even know Fanta was out back then, but I guess it yeah. was. Yeah. Oh yeah, I remember drinking it as a kid. I loved the Fanta orange oh. soda. Yeah, sponsored by Pepsi, come ride the Fanta boats. Not Mm going to work. Yeah, no. 
Much of the layout and design of the finished version of Small World was due to the fact that the ride building for this attraction was under construction before anyone knew for sure what was going to go into the structure. That's why the fair officials constructed a a simple L-shaped building with 32,000 square feet of space inside. Those who worked on the attraction called it the ugliest building you ever saw in your life. And Claude Coates, who was a whiz at designing, um, designing the ride paths for attractions, for dark rides especially, um, he designed the ride path for its small world to fit inside this building. Each section of the attraction would be built at the studio. Walt would be given a ride through for his approval. It would be disassembled, then shipped to New York to be reassembled in the show building. Back at the studio, work would begin on the next section of the attraction till it was completed. It was a laborious process. Walt Disney wanted something playful he could put out in front of the attraction building that would become an icon. Rolly Crump suggested a childlike tinker toy approach with 100 spinning, swiveling, oscillating elements, propellers, a carousel, and a representation of the sun, all dependent on the wind for locomotion. Rolly created a sketch of an elaborate design and showed it to Walt, who liked it, and told Rolly to build a model of it. It was at that moment that Rowley realized this would be a structure that he had to start thinking about in a completely different way. So he added some arches similar to the Eiffel Tower for support. And those arches would become the base of the tower. Rowley then started to add connecting pieces to the arches. Now He wasn't an engineer, but tried to think like one. He knew it all had to be connected somehow while still allowing for movement. He showed the model to Walt, who really liked it, and said to have it built full size. Rowley shipped the model and plans off to Keylight Corporation, who was hired to build the structure. They assembled it for inspection before it was shipped off to New York. When it was ready for inspection, Walt asked Rowley to drive him over to the yard for the inspection. What Rowley didn't know was that Keylight had to increase the size of some of the tubing so it would properly support the structure in hurricane force winds. Rowley was not very happy when he saw it. Walt turned to Rowley and asked, well, Rowley, what do you think? Now, Rowley was always honest with Walt, so he responded, I hate to tell you, Walt, but I think it's a piece of crap. Walt looked at Rolly and said, no, no, Roland, this cost me $200,000. It cannot be a piece of crap. And, and Rolly understood where Walt was coming from. Um, you have to. The tower was disassembled and shipped to New York. The 120-foot hun- Tower of the Four Winds would become the world's largest mobile. I remember seeing photos and and, um, film of this when I was a boy, and it absolutely fascinated me. I just thought it was the most amazing piece of sculpture with all the kinetics. Isn't it funny that what you thought was amazing, someone else thought was a piece of crap? Yeah, the creator of it did. He was disappointed because he felt that if Keylight had contacted him and said, these are the changes we have to make, he would have rethought the structure because he liked he, he liked the delicate look of it that he had designed. And so yeah, it he lost would have made, that. 
He would have made changes, yeah. You know, he absolutely would have. So. Now, the finished tower was shipped to the fair in seven chartered vans, where it was reassembled with the support of a foundation 60 feet deep, tall enough to be visible from nearly every area of the fair. Meet me under the Tower of the Four Winds became a popular catchphrase. Walt told admiring journalists the tower represented the boundless energy of youth, adding that the colors of every flag in the world would be represented somewhere in this mobile. Working in high gear, the wet crew mocked up the entire ride in full scale on a soundstage at the studio. They placed and tested the audio-animatronic children as soon as they came off the mechanical assembly line. The soundstage looked like a Hollywood version of Santa's workshop, as more than 250 animated toys were carefully handcrafted. The publicity release kept track of the materials used, 195 pounds of glitter, 57 gross of jewels, 370 yards of braid, 28 dozen tassels, feathers, and ostrich fluff. For children's hair and animal fur, they glued on marabou, ostrich plumes, goose feathers, and pheasant tails using five gallons of glue a week. Wow. The happiest cruise that ever sails was launched on April 22, 1964, with all the colorful magic of a day at Disneyland. Balloons filled the sky, and Disney characters greeted guests outside the pavilion. Guests' comments varied from wonderful to the best thing at the fair. Broadway's Dolly Levi, Carol Channing, was moved to report, With his usual good taste and brilliant imagination, Mr. Disney uses hundreds of beautiful dolls to remind us in Song of Brotherhood of Men all over the world, All of the dolls have the same face, though their color is different. Now, the only moral message conveyed in the attraction was at the end, when the children of many cultures in their native costumes are surrounded by white, blended in the final scene to sing It's a Small World with one voice. Lines were often quite long, in spite of it being one of the few attractions that cost extra money to experience in addition to the entry fee to the fair. The tickets cost 60 cents for children and 95 cents for adults. The money collected was donated to UNICEF. Approximately 40,000 people went on the ride each day, and by the end of its run at the fair, over 10 million guests had experienced the attraction. Wow. The fair's 1965 guidebook included this description of It's a Small World. A salute to the children of the world designed by Walt Disney presents animated figures frolicking in miniature settings of many lands. Visitors are carried past the scenes in small boats in an adjoining building Pepsi sponsors exhibits by the U.S. Committee for the United Nations Children Funds. Above the pavilion rises the 120-foot Tower of the Four Winds, a fanciful recreation of colored shapes that dance and twist in the breeze. The World's Fair attraction dropped riders off next to a UNICEF gift shop, encouraging them to give more to people around the world. Disney realized the benefit of tying rides with similarly themed gift shops. This reportedly started the trend of placing shops at the exits of attractions. 
Although when they built It's a Small World at Disneyland, they did not have a, a shop at the end of that attraction. Really? Yeah. Hmm. They built it years later. Did you, Michael, do the UNICEF thing in school where you would get the little box and go around to the neighbors and try to collect money? We did not because I went to Catholic schools. So ah. we did similar things, but it was for the missions, the Catholic okay. missions like in Africa or South America. I just, and I do did, remember, you know, yeah. I think it was 1976, I was doing my little UNICEF, you know, with the little box that they give you. Mm-hmm. We, I remember my neighborhood people would, when they trick-or-treated, they would trick-or-treat yes. for UNICEF. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. The small world attraction had to deal with periodic damage caused by pranksters. Fairgoers were forever stealing fish out of the koi pa- pond at the Japanese pavilion and slipping the colorful creatures into the immense water trough, uh, water-filled trough running through the Pepsi-Cola show building. That is when they weren't emptying entire bottles of Mr. Bubble into the water, which would result in the boats having to push through four foot high walls of foam. Oh, (laughs) I would never even think of that. I know. I know. When we think people were just so prim and proper back in the 60s, you know? Yeah. Walt Disney also wanted to have some of the company's costume characters that regularly meet and greet tourists at Disneyland make daily appearances in front of the Pepsi-Cola building. However, after Snow White had a switchblade pulled on her and Practical Pig had his arm of his costume torn off, Disney's characters began greeting guests at the fair from above, waving down at the people standing in line at It's a Small World from a platform fixed to the bottommost portion of the Tower of the Four Winds. I guess only in New York. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Would Snow White have a switchblade I- pulled on her? I'm kind of relieved to know that we didn't, you know, I feel like uh, society has gone far down the tubes, but apparently we really didn't, not much, because this was happening a long time ago. And I just, I I don't know. I feel like we shouldn't give Craig any ideas about the foam. We might find out he's bringing foam, uh, a bottle of Rory's bubble bath to the next It's a Small World. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. The World's Fair ended in June 1965. And It's a Small World moved into Fantasyland the year after the World's Fair ended. The Tower of the Four Winds had been left behind. As popular as this immense mobile had been, Walt balked when he learned about the projected $80,000 cost in dismantling the tower and having it shipped back to California. After the fair closed, the Tower of the Four Winds was unceremoniously pulled down. The all-metal structure was chopped into small pieces using acetylene torches, then tossed just offshore at the fair's lakeside amusement area and transportation zone. So there it is. It's in the water somewhere. They could have just delivered it to you. (laughs) You would have enjoyed it right in the backyard. In the backyard. We had a big backyard. I don't know if it was that big. (laughs) At two hundred thousand to build, and at eighty thousand, he's like, "Nope, I don't need it back. No. It's too much." And its footprint was pretty large for Disneyland, too. I remember when I was walking through the park with Bob Kerr, he talked about this, and he showed us because what they also did was they put out cement blocks in the park, showing Walt where what the footprint would be. It was huge. It was like wow. overwhelming for Disneyland. And so, okay. so Bob Gurr told me this story. So he said that was the other reason 
Walt thought it wouldn't quite fit into the park. Now, I'm thinking that that's what morphed into the clock, but I'm going to follow you and see if we get there. (laughs) As the closing of the World's Fair neared, construction began on a show building at Disneyland on one and a quarter acres just beyond the park's northern berm. Midget Utopia and the Fantasyland train station were replaced by a wide walkway extending from the motorboat cruise to an area of topiary gardens and fanciful geometric shapes to the new palatial facade for the It's a Small World attraction designed by Rolly Crump based on illustrations by Mary Blair. Rolly had asked Mary Blair to design the facades Uh. since, since she was still listed as the stylist for the project. She came up with six designs. The issue was that Mary had difficulty transitioning designs from two dimensions to three dimensions. Rolly and Mary met with Walt, and Mary presented her idea for the facade. Her concept for the facade was as if a little girl had built it with building blocks. Now, if Walt didn't like something, he wouldn't come right out and say it. Instead, his response would be, you know what? Maybe let's try it from a different angle. And that's pretty much what he said about Mary's proposal. Mary had also been asked to work on a design for the Oceana section of the attraction. It was not part of the World's Fair version, so the team was working on making this new section fit into the attraction. Mary presented her idea for this scene which included carpeting all over the sets, which did not fit in with the rest of her design throughout the attraction. Walt said, you know, Mary, we're really going to have to really take a hard look at this to figure it out. According to Rolly Crump, after the meeting, Mary went to a local bar called Alphonse, had about six martinis, and booked a flight home. Wow. Yeah, yeah, she took it. She took that hard that none of her proposals got accepted. Rowling went to Dick Irvine, the supervising art director, and told him, I know what Walt wants with the facade, but I don't want to answer to anybody but Walt. Rowling had also been working on facade designs using Mary's ideas as inspiration on the side and worked with Fred Jerger in the studio's model shop to build a cardboard model of the facade in just seven days. When Rolly and Fred were working on the model, they had a tray of little model trees for landscaping. Rolly suggested to Fred they put the tray on top of the model and set the trees from there to save them from having to walk around the table with it. As they were doing this, Walt came by and said, you know what I really like about what you did here? I like the idea of you that you put trees on the roof. That way nobody will know there's a building there. When Rolly explained what he and Fred were doing, Walt said, I don't care. I still think it's a good idea. (laughs) And that's why for years there were trees atop It's a Small World, but they became a maintenance nightmare and were quietly removed. The original facade was built in white with gold trim with some blue highlights to enhance the layered effects. In an interview, Rolly Crump recalled how he came to use those colors. Before Yale, Gracie and I went to work for Walt at WED, Ken Anderson took both of us aside and said, Now you guys remember that when you're designing anything for Disneyland, you're the gods. You tell them what you want, and you make sure they do it your way, no matter what. 
And we said, okay. Then in the very first meeting I was in with Walt, he said, you got to remember there are electricians, there are plumbers, there's air conditioning. You've got to work around that. They're just as important as you are. And I thought, well, there you are, Ken. I learned that you've got to think about the other disciplines. When we were designing the facade for It's a Small World, I found out that it would be built by the staff shop at Disneyland. I went directly to them and found they were going to make it out of fiberglass. And they said to me, for heaven's sake, don't paint it, Raleigh. Maybe have an accent color, but keep it white. It will be a nightmare to repaint because the colors will burn out. I saw the gold leaf on the Cinderella's castle in Storybook Land, and so we used it because there's virtually no maintenance. I think we used up all the gold leaf in the United States, and we sent to Germany for more. So we built something 350 feet long and 80 feet high that required almost no maintenance. Disneyland really appreciated that. Back at WED, there were a number of plans by the guys on what colors to paint the facade. When Walt took a look at my white and gold presentation, he turned to me and said, Rolly, build it exactly the way it is. With all the turrets, topiaries, and kinetics, the showpiece of the attraction's courtyard is a 30-foot-high small world clock tower. Every 15 minutes, a loud gong chimes and wooden tick-tock sounds begins. Gears and clocks, wheels spin, numbers dance as a colorful parade of 24 Children of the World toys emerge from double doors and parade out, around, and behind the clock. John, when you were at Small World, when you were at Disneyland, did you get a chance to see this? I did, and I love it. I know. I will purposely watch my clock and go there just to watch. The, um, the sounds are great. Watch it. Yeah, yeah. I love those gear it. sounds and everything. I love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I love when the trumpets blare, yes. you know, and all that. Yeah. The original model had a platform like stage in front. When Walt asked Rolly what Rolly's plans were for the platform, and he said he didn't have any plans. So then ideas were tossed back and forth for a few minutes. The idea of having a band played there was suggested, but Walt said they couldn't afford to have a band there every day, and he didn't like the idea of having an empty platform when the band wasn't there. The idea of a clock tower was Walt's. Rowley called Mary Blair and asked her to sketch some ideas for a clock. Whilst on an airplane, Mary drew a black and white sketch of a clock on a napkin based on Rowley's Tower of the Four Winds. From the sketch, Rolly built a detailed model of a working clock with music and little figurines coming out the bo- uh, of the back. Rolly has a, he framed that napkin, and he still has it. I his, would love to see that photo. Yeah. Oh, that's great! In in his um, autobiography, there's a photo of it. Of, of I that. have to go look. I have to look for that. When Dick Irvine saw the model, he said it wasn't quite right because it didn't have a little rooster coming out and any bells ringing and suggested having Mark Davis design it. An angry Rolly, realizing Dick was thinking of the European clock towers he had seen, recommended letting Walt see the model first. Dick agreed. When Walt came down to look at the model, Rolly ran the model for him and Walt just looked at it. 
Dick got a little smile on his face, thinking Walt was about to agree that it wasn't quite right for the facade. Then Walt asked Rolly to run it again. When it finished, Dick told Walt he was going to have Mark Davis work on it. Walt said, I like it just the way it is, and asked Rolly to run it again. After its third run, he asked Rolly how many figures were coming out of the clock. When Rolly told him nine, Walt said, don't you realize there are 24 hours in a day? Walt also said he wanted the figures to come out the, from the front instead of for the sides. So Rolly added more figures and raised the clock so the figures would come out the front. The model of the facade was updated with the clock and Walt came down to give his final approval. He studied every detail for three or four minutes without saying a word. Then he turned to Rolly and said, Rolly, do you have any regrets or anything about this that bothers you? What do you think about it? Oh, boy. Rolly responded, I think it's fine. I think it's the way it should be. Walt asked again, so you have no regrets? Rolly replied, no, sir. Walt gave his approval in his unique style. Well, build the goddamn thing then. And he walked (laughs) away. (laughs) That's great. Construction and and installation of the attraction lasted from June 9th, 1965 through May 28th, 1966. Rolly Crump was the art director and project lead for the relocated attraction. The sets at the New York World's Fair were taken down and transported across the country via global van lines back to Los Angeles. The transportation tags can still be found on some of the set pieces. The Disneyland version of the attraction was lengthened by one-third, and additional elements were added throughout the attraction. Walt walked through the attraction and suggested where elements like giant butterflies could be added. Rolly wanted the water to be up to the edge of the sets. But Walt said, Rolly, we already own the trough. We're not going to put water to the sets. The Disneyland Topiary program was started at Walt Disney's direction four years before It's a Small World was scheduled to open at Disneyland. Topiary figures were designed based on the stars of Disney films like Dumbo and Fantasia, which included waltzing hippos, crocodiles, and balancing elephants. The animals were shrunk in size to fit the scale of a garden. For example, the giraffe was shrunk to just 10 feet, but the poodles grew to 2 feet. Lightweight steel skeletons were fashioned into the bones of the animal, then matched to mature living plants. A giraffe would have two short and two tall trees. A dancing elephant with only one point of contact with the earth would have two medium-height plants. The Disney horticultural staff formed the main branches to the skeletons and kept them trim and tied to the skeletons to form the shapes of each animal. Four years later, 20 topiaries were moved on stage into the garden to greet guests before they sailed into the attraction and as they exited. I love the topiaries and and the the beautiful garden that's that's all surrounding the the front of It's a Small World. It's really nice, yeah. Yeah. I was jealous when I went to Disneyland and saw your It's a Small World. Mm -hmm. Don't get me started. It could be a whole show, my comments. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you feel free. Feel free. This is the show to comment on it. It, it just was so much – I thought it was so much better. I don't know. It wasn't just the outside, which it was. I mean, the outside was better. It was everything inside. It just felt so much happier to me. I don't know why. Something you know, about- it, it's because it's jam-packed. There's so much so. in there. There's no space in between anything. That Yeah, yeah. It's all closer to you. It's mm-hmm. more intimate, yeah. Yeah. Despite Pepsi-Cola being the sponsor of the attraction at the World's Fair and being a sponsor at Disneyland, longtime Disney associate Bank of America was the corporate sponsor when it opened on May 28, 1966 with an international celebration. Executives from the Walt Disney Company and Bank of America attended, along with 36 foreign counselor officials, 800 members of the press, and the International Children Choir of Long Beach. It all started with a parade down Main Street, USA, with local folk dancing groups and marching bands representing 15 countries, along with 12-foot replicas of small world figures, ending at It's a Small World. Walt Disney assisted children from 16 countries to pour pitchers of water from seven seas and nine major lagoons into the new Disney International Waterway. The park's publicist, Jack Lindquist, had put out a call to Disney's overseas representatives to obtain actual water from various countries, and they were encouraged to be imaginative. After Walt and the children poured out the water into the attraction's canal, Disneyland ambassador Connie Swanson gave the signal for 10,000 balloons to be released before a fireworks show roared over Fantasyland. Then the first boats were launched for the happiest cruise that ever sailed at Disneyland. Over the years, subtle updates were made to the scenes and costumes. The hello and goodbye rooms were added to the attractions when it opened at Disneyland, and they have been updated several times. In the 1960s and 70s, there were stylized cutouts of flowers saying hello and goodbye in several languages. These were then changed to stylized rainbows with cutout butterflies in the 1980s and 90s, before changing to a nautical theme with stylized boats with different greetings at the turn of the millennium. When Bank of America sponsored the ride, there was also a message in the goodbye room that read, Wherever you go around the world, you're never far from Bank of America. The finale scene also received changes as originally the color palette was white with colored pastels, such as pink, yellow, and light blue. And in the early 1980s, this would be changed to a darker color palette of black, as well as purple and blue. There also used to be a large stylized sun at the end of the finale scene, which was removed in the early 1990s. The attraction was closed from January to November 28th, so it was it closed and reopened in the holiday version, skipping mm. the summer season entirely, <laughs> to receive a major refurbishment. The building structure was improved, permanent attachments created for the It's a Small World holiday overlay, the water flume was replaced and its propulsion upgraded, to electric water jet turbines, and the attraction's aging fiberglass boats were redesigned in durable plastic. The refurbishment also restored the original white and pastel colors in the finale, as well as the farewell sun and tapestry, which hadn't been seen since the 1964-65 World's Fair. 
Osram Sylvania agreed to a 12-year sponsorship. In 2014, the sponsor logo of the attraction's entrance changed to that of Siemens AG, the parent company of Sylvania. That sponsorship ended its run after the 2017 holiday season. The most controversial enhancements made to the attractions as part of this refurbishment were the additions of a United States Western scene replacing the rainforest scene and Disney characters with their theme songs in their appropriate country setting. As they sail, guests can look for Peter Pan, Tinkerbell, Alice, and the White Rabbit in England, Cinderella with Mouse Friends Gus and Jacques in France, Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket in Italy, Aladdin, Jasmine, Carpet, and Abu in the Middle East, Mulan and Mushu in China, Simba, Pumbaa, and Timon in Africa, the three caballeros, Donald Duck, Jose, and Panchito in Latin America, Ariel, Flounder, Dory, Marlin, Lilo, and Stitch are in the South Seas, and Woody, Jesse, and Bullseye are in the new North American Southwest scene. So, John, how do you feel about those additions? Because you don't have them in Magic Kingdom. Nope, but I saw them in Disneyland. Mm Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, I loved it. I didn't think I was going to. At first, it felt a little sacrilegious to me to mess with It's a Small World and add, you know, something different to the children. But for some reason, it just worked perfect because they looked like kind of abstract toys rather than the actual character. And then when I could hear like Ariel singing the It's a Small World theme, but like it was a Little Mermaid theme kind of mixed with it, I just thought it was done brilliantly. What do you feel? Yeah, yeah. Well, what's funny? Kim Irvine, who was the imaginer in charge of this, said she literally got death threats when oh, this was it. announced and done. Which, again, just shows you the craziness of Disneylanders. You know, because you know they 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 have as we talked before, they feel they have an ownership of the park. Yeah, yeah. But um, at first, I, I, at first, I wasn't thrilled. I didn't like. I, I didn't think the music weaved into it very well. I I would I would be fine if they removed the musical themes from okay. each from each film in there because I, I I think it's intrusive. But when Carol and I took our granddaughter, who was in her, I, I think she was in her Snow White costume when she was like two or three years old, and she was there in that boat. She pointed out every single Sweet. character. And then that won me over completely. Yep. And so, that's the reason they did it. Mm-hmm. And and at that, such a young age, she just kept pointing at them and finding them and even sometimes naming them. Then I thought, okay, this, I that it. did it for me. I'm fine with them now. I still would like their musical themes removed, but otherwise I'm fine with them. <laughs> yeah, and I think for me, the music, I think be- – <clears throat> It was so good and I took it so I think because we didn't have it here mm-hmm. and I think it broke up the monotony of the song that I know so well my whole life and I and I enjoyed for, I don't know if maybe they changed it because to me it seemed to weave in really seamless but again that could just be because of I've never seen it before and it was really you know new to me yeah I think some of them are weaved in a little better than others in there or maybe it's because um it's where the speakers are in them, so they're some are a little louder than others. I don't know. So, now, did you know that there's a tribute to Mary Blair that was added? 
You know, for some reason, I remember someone telling me that, but I don't recall mm-hmm. where. Yeah. In the Western European scene, there is a little blonde doll holding a balloon halfway up the Eiffel Tower. She was created as a tribute to Mary Blair with its short blonde hair and floral dress. If you haven't seen her before, it's most likely because your back is turned toward the side of the tower she sits on as the boat passes by. So next time you pass the Eiffel Tower, you want to turn around and look up. She's about halfway up there. Legend has it. Sometimes you can see her with seven martinis. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. In in 2011, Disney started utilizing projection mapping on the It's a Small World facade for nighttime entertainment with the first show, The Magic, The Memories, and You. Disneyland has used this attraction facade for nighttime projections ever since. I think the best one is during Christmas. Um, the, yeah, I have not. The been Christmas there for projection is really good. Many park guests believe Disneyland is at its most beautiful during the holidays. It's a Small World is transformed into It's a Small World holiday with its exterior and interior lighting going, undergoing a holiday overlay to become the merriest cruise that ever set sail. The outside is lit with almost one million twinkling lights, there, and there is a lighting every day. The clock sports a huge Santa hat. A projection show entertains guests throughout the night with fun holiday images and music. Then the ex- the exterior becomes part of the Believe in Holiday Magic fireworks show with different projections set to the music and pyrotechnics. Snow falls in the area several times per night, including after the fireworks. So for me, this is a must-see attraction during the holidays. It is gorgeous at I night. I need to see that. You do. You have to come to Disneyland at Christmas time. I, I do, especially also for the Haunted Mansion. Yes. I'm sure there'll be another show on if you haven't done it already. Yeah. <laughs> During the ride, the dolls add jingle bells and deck the halls to the It's a Small World After All song. You can also smell holiday scents in some rooms, such as peppermint, gingerbread, cherry blossoms, cinnamon, coconut, and passion fruit. The attractions in Tokyo Disneyland, Disneyland Paris, and Hong Kong Disneyland also have versions of this holiday overlay. In 2022, the It's a Small World dolls and artwork inspired the new finale for the Main Street Electrical Parade. New characters from recent and classic Disney movies appeared in doll form amongst floats designed to look like the attraction to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the parade. And really all they did was they redressed the um, Tribute to America um, float. But it's it's very charming. I mean, it, it was cute. But how do you pe- feel about the Christmas song? I, I love it. it. Is okay. I need to. Li- I've never heard it. Absolutely love it. Okay. So, um, so I, I have a recording of it. Actually, a listener several years ago, when I mentioned on the show that um, I was really disappointed that they don't, they've never released like um, "Paint the Night." And sound, Mickey Sensational Parade, you know, all those soundtracks, they really don't release them anymore like they used to. This listener very kindly, and, and if you're listening, if you have any new soundtracks, please send them to me. She sent me like a set of five CDs of parade music, um, uh, uh, and, 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 
It's a Small World soundtracks, including the Christmas soundtrack, um, the, even the, even the Christmas music from the, um, from Disneyland Paris. I listen to those all the time, especially when I'm, wow. when I'm writing the scripts for the show. So I listened to the Small World one she gave me several times as I wrote this script. That's and, um, anyway, but they, it, I love those CDs. They're amongst my favorite in my collection. But um, anyway, but no, the Christmas music is so happy and so jolly. You, you you can't help but be in the Christmas spirit. That's great. If you go into that park and you're feeling down at Christmas time, ride It's a Small World, and you will come out with your burdens lifted, and you'll be in the Christmas spirit, and you'll have a smile on your face, and you'll want a cup of hot chocolate and a Christmas cookie. Oh. You know, (laughs) in November 2022. Oh, but what people don't remember, first of all, going back, what I remember when it's when the electrical parade debuted at Disneyland and it was when they had two dimensional, um, you know, flats that, that, you know, were moved, were pushed down the street by cast members. They had It's a Small World dolls on pedestals that that cast members pushed as part of the parade. So Aww. so bringing back the It's a Small World dolls in a new form for the 50th anniversary of the parade was very appropriate. That's awesome. You know. In November 2022, Disneyland introduced the first dolls who use wheelchairs in an effort to demonstrate the message of inclusion for all people of all abilities more closely represents diversity around the world. Um, There are plans to add similar dolls to the attractions of Walt Disney World and Disneyland Paris in 2023. What's nice is that It's a Small World is one of the most accessible attractions in which people can remain in their wheelchair or their electric scooter when they ride. Carol would do this. They have a special boat on, on the one at Disneyland and it, and, and they, she, they just put her in her scooter Right on that boat. I always joked it was like Cleopatra riding her barge <laughs> going through the attraction. And because you're up high when you're doing that. And then, and then the family can sit. There's seats for the family right, and right, friends. Right. Uh, but it's a hoot. And she's up there and she's doing her, her little, you know, Queen Elizabeth wave. <laughs> she goes to, oh, it was hilarious. But it was just so nice because for somebody who has, um, maybe you have mobility issues getting in and out of those boats is tough. I mean, it's tough for me now as I get, you know, arthritis in my knees and stuff like that, you know, so when it's, when it's ready to exit, you got to be ready. Yep. You do. Otherwise, if you, you can get numb on that boat because you're sitting very low. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, like those Matterhorn bobsleds. Yeah. (laughs) On October 1st, 1971, a version of It's a Small World was an opening day attraction of Florida's Walt Disney World's Fantasyland within the Magic Kingdom. Now, the boarding queue was built within the attraction. The Kodak Company sponsored the attraction in the early 1980s before the toy company Mattel sponsored the attraction from 1991 until 1998, when it transferred its sponsorship to another Magic Kingdom attraction, Buzz Lightyear's um, Space Ranger Spin in nearby Tomorrowland. Um, in 2005, 
the attraction's loading area was redesigned to feature an indoor version of the facade and clock tower based on the Disneyland version. Now, the clock doesn't have the parade of wooden dolls. It instead goes straight to the opening, um, the central pair of doors to reveal the time. And in 2021, for the park's 50th anniversary, its facade was repainted in bright colors. So I, um, so I'm, that was a nice addition in there because that was yes. a big wall that needed something. Big. Yeah. There was a time when they painted, um, the facade of Disneyland's is, um, to pastel colors. All these multi, which is what Rolly Crump had envisioned before he talked to the model, to the, to the shop that was building it. And then he went with white, but that didn't last very long. And then I thought they, they were saying that it was really bad to paint because you couldn't repaint it. It was, but was, you know, but the problem uh, is, is that it was around the time Hong Kong Disneyland opened and they painted their facade that way. So they mimicked it, and then they went back to the white and gold. We went back to the white and gold at Disneyland. The Tokyo Disneyland version of the attraction is identical in layout to the Magic Kingdom version, except for a few differences. The facade's design is an almost complete replica of the California counterpart under a different color scheme resembling Disneyland's 1990s version. The loading area is split into two zones instead of one. A welcome room was added during the 2018 refurbishment resembling the one at the California version. There are scenes featuring various Disney characters designed in Mary Blair's style that were added during the 2018 refurbishment. The Asian room features significantly different sets and dolls for Japan and China compared to the Magic Kingdom version. A Mandarin language track was added to the China section in the 2018 refurbishment. The attraction uses a different, more recent recording of the song sung by in Japanese, specifically created for this version instead of the original Japanese recording. The vocal track is used for both the Asian room and the finale room. The walls in the African, South American, and Oceania rooms are painted in colors similar to the Magic Kingdom version before its 2005 renovation. The Polynesian room has vocal singing in English. The goodbye room resembles the one found at the California version. On March 1st, 2017, Tokyo Disneyland's version of It's a Small World closed down for refurbishment for its first major update since the park's opening in 1983. Reopened on April 8, 2018, coinciding with Tokyo Disneyland's 35th anniversary, the attraction featured 40 characters from Disney films, including Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, the Aristocats, Brave, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Pinocchio, The Jungle Book, The Lion King, Hercules, The Three Caballeros, Mulan, Tangled, Lilo and Stitch, Frozen, Finding Nemo, and Moana, similar to California and Hong Kong versions of the attractions. Also included in the 2018 refurbishment was a new color scheme for the facade, a new TikTok um, sound and parade music similar to the ones used in Hong Kong and Anaheim, an entirely redone loading area dubbed Small World Station, a new welcome room, an extended goodbye room, redone set pieces and music tracks new to the ride, including a Mandarin language track added to the China scene that had been exclusive to the Hong Kong version. 
The attraction at Disneyland Paris is a departure from the other versions of the attraction. The facade features rearranged and slightly redesigned landmarks with a completely different clock tower. The exterior clock face features a wide-awake sun on its left half and a sleeping moon on its right half. Unlike all other versions of the ride, every scene is housed in one room with arches being used to define sections of the ride. The scenery design is a complete departure from Mary Blair's distinctive style, though the dolls used remain identical to all other versions. The ride also uses a completely different soundtrack composed by John Debney, which was also used for roughly a decade at the California version from 1992 to 2002 before switching back to the original 1966 soundtrack. And it can be described as more ornate compared to the original soundtrack. This is the first version of the ride to incorporate a scene for North America with dolls representing Canada and the United States and a distinct Middle Eastern section with dolls singing in Arabic and Hebrew. In the finale room, in addition to the song being sung in English, it is also sung in Dutch, French, German, and Russian. The attraction had a post-show area called World Chorus, which opened with the park in 1992 and then closed in 2010 to make way for a Princess Pavilion meet-and-greet area. World Chorus was a walk-through attraction in which guests observed replicas of various world landmarks, such as the Eiffel Tower, Big Ben, Taj Mahal, the Sydney Opera House, the Sphinx, St. Basil's Cathedral, the Parthenon, and an African hut in which animated children were seen communicating to each other through different uses of technology in 14 different scenes. As part of an ongoing plan to refurbish several attractions for the park's 25th anniversary, this version went under an extensive refurbishment for six months before it reopened on December 19, 2015. This refurbishment included a different color scheme for the facade that is identical to the color scheme when it first opened, restored audio animatronics and special effects, refurbished boats, new LED lighting to replace the old stage lighting, and all 176 dolls in a ride being progressively replaced through 2017. The entrance and exit rooms have been completely revamped, being identical to the entrance scene in Hong Kong Disneyland's version, and the exit scene in the Magic Kingdom and Hong Kong Disneyland versions, rendered in the Mary Blair style, similar to the other parks. The soundtrack has been completely remastered, making it more similar to the original version. Additionally, new audio tracks were added, including a new recording of a doll yodeling to the tune of the song in the Switzerland scene. In preparation for the park's 30th anniversary, the attraction closed on November 2011 for refurbishment to address several outdoor facade technical upgrade, doll replacement, and asbestos removal issues. It was expected to reopen in November 2022, but park officials recently announced it would reopen in spring 2023. The Hong Kong Disneyland version of the attraction opened on April 28, 2008, as part of an expansion of Fantasyland and is mostly modeled after the original Disneyland version. It uses a canal 
for the boats to travel through instead of the open-ended water track found in the Magic Kingdom, Tokyo, and Paris versions. Some of this version's unique features include 38 Disney characters, all rendered in the Mary Blair style, were added to scenes where their stories originated. These were originally intended for the Magic Kingdom version of the attraction. Hmm. So that's why you don't have them. They all went to Hong Kong. Can't somebody make duplicates, please, for me? Well, it is your your attraction is going is scheduled for a reversion for a refurbishment. So maybe um, maybe you'll get them. An expanded Asia sequence with Hong Kong, the Philippines, and Korea represented with children singing in Cantonese, Tagalog, and Korean, as well as an extended China scene with represented with children singing in Mandarin. A distinct Arabian room with scenes for North America, similar to the Paris version. Fiber optic lighting effects in the finale room not seen in the other versions. And Cantonese, Korean, Mandarin, and Tagalog versions of the song that were specifically recorded for Hong Kong Disneyland. The finale is sung in three languages, Cantonese, English, and Mandarin. So, John, you have to um, to put all these on your wish list. I do. Let see. me ask you before before you get to the the, the, the end here. What is? Do you have a favorite room? Because I literally have a favorite room. I think my favorite room is the besides the finale, the the big yeah. white room, Disneyland's finale, is um, all the my, and of course Disneyland is my favorite of all of all of them because I think it's the more ornate and the more it it's is. more lush I think I than all the others um it's the room when it opens up I think it's the room where it has the middle eastern room in it and the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. because it's the most full and you see things flying above you yes and it and and there are scenes on both sides of the canal Whereas okay. I think up to that, you're, there's scenes more on one side than the other. And then that's where it really opens up. So I think that's those I, are my favorite scenes. You're almost swaying me because I agree with you what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But the uh, for me, for some reason, the music and stuff from the – I guess you would call it the South Pacific Room mm-hmm. the, with the Hawaiian hula girls doing their little mm-hmm. shake. It, it, I just love it. I love the whole – I just like the whole South Pacific. I do like that. I, I like that scene before it was changed, before our big 20, our 2008 refurbishment, because, um, you know, when before it was REL, the, when the mermaids sang, they all sounded like they were underwater. Okay. When you listen to the original soundtrack, they had that bubbly sound to their voices, which was that was removed. But my favorite uh, scene before then, it was the um, rainforest scene that got removed and replaced uh, with the Southwestern scene. I just thought that was so cool. They have a little bit of it that they put in at the end of the South Seas scene before you go into the Southwestern scene. But um, I loved uh, I loved the rainforest room. There. I wonder why uh, Paris was allowed to depart so much from Mary Blair's. You know, I know the dolls were hers, but you said mm-hmm. something about the whole style. It's completely different. There's uh, there's um, ride throughs on YouTube. You can see it's more of a. It, it looks like it's more out of a cartoon film 
kind of thing, the way the scenes are designed and all that. It's yeah. not that Mary Blair style. I don't like it. I got to check it. I still haven't seen it, so I shouldn't say that, but I feel like we can use that cartoon style for other things. Let mm-hmm. It's a Small World be Mary Blair. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But more than six decades later, the simplicity of the message and the beauty of its design continue to enchant guests around the world, which is precisely what Walt had planned after all. And and now it's time for this week in Disney history. And I'm going with a theme here. Because I'm going way back to February 27th, 1930, because that is when Roland Fargo Roly Crump, the animator and designer noted particularly for his work as a Disney Imagineer, was born in Alhambra, California. So it's his birthday. So he first joined Walt Disney Studios in 1952. He worked as an in-betweener, which he hated. Before becoming an assistant animator on films like Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, and 101 Dalmatians, in 1951, he joined um, Wet Enterprises, which later became Walt Disney Imagineering. And he became a designer of some of Disneyland's attractions and shops, including the Haunted Mansion, the Enchanted Tiki Room, the Adventureland Bazaar. And of course, it's a small world. He's responsible for designing many of the Disney attractions at the 1964 New York World's Fair, including, as we were talking about just now, It's a Small World and the Tower of the Four Winds. He later contributed to early designs of the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World in Florida. He worked on designs for NBC's Disney on Parade in 1970, before leaving Disney to work on outside projects, including Bush Gardens, the ABC Wildlife Preserve in Maryland, and Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus World. He also worked on, on a beloved attraction at Knott's Berry Farm called Knott's Berry Tales. It was wow. removed, and a version of it has since been brought back um, recently, well, last few years. But but it was an it was a dark ride that he completely designed. It was a delightful ride. Um, he returned to work for Disney in 1976, designing the Land and Wonders of Life pavilions at Epcot Center, before leaving again in 1981 to design the proposed Cousteau Ocean Center in Norfolk, Virginia. And then he set up his own business, the Mariposa Design Group, and he developed projects in Oman, Las Vegas, Denver, and many other places. He then returned to Disney one last time in 1992 as an executive designer in Imagineering. Then he retired four years later. He was named a Disney legend in 2004. His autobiography is it's is titled It's Kind of a Cute Story. It was published in 2012. I don't believe it's available anymore, but I think you can get it on CD. I think... Or digital download or something. I think it's still available that way. It is a delightful book because, um, it's, it's, it's well written. It's based on interviews with him and it's in his words. And he, um, you know, he knows where the bodies are buried and he's <laughs> at that age where he doesn't mind. I love it when, I love it because I've interviewed him. If you let's go back and listen to my interview on the Disneyland show. I believe, I think it was on Disney Channel. could have been on Connecting with Walt. We interviewed him because, and I've met him in person. 
Carol and I went to an event at the Walt Disney Family Museum. And I don't recall what the event was. And we walked into it. And it was an after-hours event. And we go into the main lobby where all of Walt's awards are. And there's a man sitting on a bench with a lovely woman that was his wife. And I and he's sitting by himself. And nobody's talking to him. Everybody's ignoring him. And I, I said, Carol, I said, that's Rolly Crump. And I said, and I said, should I go up and talk to him? And I, I did. Yes. <laughs> we had a most delightful conversation. He was such, so warm and, and all that. And then, and I, and his wife was just, she was just so nice, so lovely. And then, um, and, and really such a big support for him and, and of him. And then we, and then, and then he came on the show. And by that time, you know, he's, he's up there. He worked with Walt. And so when you, and so his hearing was going. So what we had to do is ask the question, then she would tell it to him. Then he would say his answer and then we would respond. And so that's sort of how the interview went. And it had to be edited so that, you know, that those pauses weren't there, but it was a really great interview. And now, I don't um, know if you have any more insight as to why he did not like being an in-betweener, but knowing Rolly, such a creative person, being an in-betweener, you literally have no creative input. Uh-huh. It's somebody showing you the guide from here to here, and you just got to fill in the That's in exactly what it was. It was boring. It was tedious. And you're right. There was no creativity. And sense. then and then another artist took him under his wing and sort of rescued him from that. So yeah, that that's exactly what it is. So anyway, so definitely February twenty seventh, raise a glass to Roly Crump. So um anyway, and so John, what about you? What do you have for us today? I just went with one that I found amazing. February twenty fifth, nineteen sixty five. Mary Poppins is nominated for an amazing 13 Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. And I'll just rattle them off for you real quick. Best Picture, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Julie Andrews, obviously. Best Director, Robert Stevenson. Best Adapted Screenplay, Bill Walsh and Don. I think it's DeGrady. I might be saying Mm -hmm. that wrong. DeGrady, yeah. Best DeGrady. Best Cinematography, Color. Best Art Direction, Set Direction, Color. Best Sound. Best Film Editing, Cotton Warburton. Best Music. Substantially original, Sherman Brothers. Best music, scoring of music, adaption, adapt, adaptation or treatment, Erwin Castal. Best music, original song. Do you know which song it is? Because I wouldn't have picked this one. Do oh, you know really? Which song was not. Do you know which one? Was it? Was it, ch- um, it? Was it Chim 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I, I don't know. I just thought there's other better songs in there. I know. Like you would think it would be Feed the Birds or something yes. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Best Costume Design, uh, Best Effects, Special Visual Effects, which are Peter Ellenshaw, Hamilton Lusk, Lusk and mm-hmm. Eustace Lysett. Lysette. And mm-hmm. uh, Lysette, thank you. Mm-hmm. And the 37th Academy Awards were then held on April 5th. But 13, wow. And the yeah. Best Picture was a f- the first one for a Disney film. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and that was – and, of course, that went to My Fair Lady Best Picture that year. But Julie Andrews won for Best Actress. And so she, she, yeah, and she won against, um, 
Oh gosh, who who was in My Fair Lady? Oh. I could see her. I could see her face. Was that the lady from the Partridge family? Was that no? Oh no no no, it was no, no, uh, no. okay. Oh, I know people are shouting at us right now. And, and Marnie Nixon <laughs> sang it for it. She didn't even sing her own songs. <laughs> okay. Um, you checking it or you want me to check who it I'm is? I'm checking it right now. Audrey Hepburn, of course. Oh, that's right. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. And okay. so, and, and she, and Audrey Hepburn was nominated also. So, of course, when Julie Andrews went up there, she thanked the, um, producers of My Fair Lady for not hiring her for the film My Fair Lady. (laughs) Because she won for Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. And it was in her Mary contract for Mary Poppins that if she got hired for My Fair Lady, she was going to do My Fair Lady. Ah. Yeah. Okay. There's also another funny one because the Sherman brothers won the Oscars. They won a couple of Oscars, I believe, for um, Mary Poppins. Or, there, or at least for that 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 that's that year, and so they go into Walt's desk, Walt's office next day with the uh, with the um, Oscars, and you know they're they're flying high, and they go in there and show it to him, and he says, "Yeah, don't let it go to your head. Get back to work." <laughs> <laughs> Something like, like that. But I love Mary Poppins. What did you think of the sequel, Mary Poppins Returns? I really enjoyed it. I, I did, did too. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I missed Julie Andrews, but I thought, and I forgot her name. I thought she did as good a job as anyone could mm-hmm. possibly do in that position. I would I, not I, mind seeing more stories with her and, and that cast and all that. I thought, yeah, I, I thought it is, is, if it was as good of a sequel as they possibly could have made. Possibly. And then Dick Van Dyke at the end was just. Oh mm. my gosh. And he really jumped on that desk. He did. I yeah. Know. Yeah. I That's in. amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Would yeah. have taken me at least maybe 22 Advils, maybe. <laughs> and, and two people helping me up. <laughs> yes. And, and, and three other people to give me a boost. Yeah. One, one holding each arm is like, good up, not up there. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I and I like some. I love some of the music from it, and some of the sets. Yeah, were, I thought it was going to do better also at the box office. Oh, the the set with the uh, the the lighting thing. I forgot the the lamp people. Oh funny. yeah, yeah, I like that one. But um, the one where where the kids where they go into the world of the uh, of the bowl. That bowl and oh, like yes, it. And, yes. And, and and Mary Poppins does her song. The way those sets unfolded and all that and changed and all that, I thought that was remarkable. I loved Amazing. it. Amazing. And I loved yeah, you and, didn't, I, and the lyrics were very clever. Yes. You didn't know where physical sets ended and CGI mm-hmm. began, which is good the way it should be. Mm-hmm. You just you know, you're on for the ride. Even when they went into the bathtub and did that little song, it was really effective. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought it's a delightful film. I really, I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm not one for sequels, but I, that was a that was a fun sequel. So, so well, I wanted to give an update on um, Jim Corcus. I, I did hear an update about him. I heard this last week. He had two surgeries. To okay. and um, but that he is recovering well, 
uh, and he was recovering still in the hospital. So I haven't heard yet if he's gone home or anything like that, but um, some good news. Yeah. So, so we'll keep, still continue to keep him in your thoughts and prayers and all that. We'll look forward to when he's feeling up and can have him back on the show again. And all that. I think it'll be a while. (laughs) So, and you never know with him, he may spring back and be ready quicker than you think. You never know. He's probably already working on a book from his hospital bed, knowing him. <laughs> I bet you. I bet you. I bet you he is. So um, anyway, and then, oh, I, you know, I, I love getting surveys. So I always like to share when I got a, I got a Magic Key survey this week for Magic okay. Key holders at Disneyland. Because, you, you know, I always like to see, okay, what do they want to know? Because in my head is, okay, what are they trying to get rid of? you know, in the surveys. So it was all about, well, first of all, it was all asking if, you know, all the usual demographics and stuff like that. And, um, but it was all, it was really finding out about, did I know what all the benefits of the magic key were? And then how much did I value every single one of them? Mm. And that's what the whole purpose of it was, was what value did I place? Extremely valuable, somewhat valuable, and all of that, and then on, then and then on a, it took like a handful of them, and asked, okay, for these kind of events, did would I, schedule did I schedule an extra, an additional trip to Disneyland to experience them? Did I alter an existing trip, to go to them, or um, did it? Did I not attend them at all? So I thought, you know, okay, so I see what they're going for here. Yeah, you know, you're right. They're looking for which one they can kill. What can they drop from yeah. from Magic Key? So um, anyway, so so if, if you're a Magic Key holder, if you haven't gotten that one, um, keep an eye out for it in there. But um, but they're always looking for things to get rid of. I, I mean, because I remember in the past I've gotten surveys and it was all about like the um, entertainment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what bands did you listen to? What what live entertainment did you enjoy and all that? And I'm someone that goes and listens to all of it and will look and see is it on the app, you know, and all that because I enjoy all that stuff. So um but I always even if I sometimes even if I haven't seen it, I'll say I did because <laughs> I don't want it to go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I might have seen it as I sort of passed by. <laughs> so. You you preempt their intentions. Yeah. But overall I'm honest. I'm pretty honest about it. But uh I think at least we have to be happy that they care enough to ask before they just get rid of something. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, yeah, that's true. So and the um the the Disney One Hundred Years of Wonder exhibit has opened at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. I am gonna be there on March eighth. I'm going to it. So, Sorry. any listeners who are hanging around in Philadelphia on March eighth, uh, you know, look for me on the steps where either Benjamin Franklin or Rocky statues are. <laughs> I may see you. I think I have like a nine a.m. reservation. So I'm meeting with some listeners, meeting oh, up, and nice. we are going to go and all that. So, um, so I'm looking forward to that. Very so, nice. Anyway, that'll be fun. And then, of course, I will, when I return, I will report back on it and um, share what I saw. Anyway. So I referred to several books, articles, and websites during my research for this episode. Books. 
Disneyland, The Inside Story by Randy Bright. The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream by Sam Genoway. Walt Disney's Disneyland by Chris Nichols. It's Kind of a Cute Story by Rolly Crump. Design Just for Fun by Bob Gurr. That is his autobiography, which unfortunately is out of print now. Um, the E-Ticket Magazine, issue 38, featuring It's a Small World. It's a Small World, a Disneyland pictorial, pictorial souvenir that was produced by Disneyland when it used to do that kind of stuff decades ago. The five CD set, Walt Disney and the 1964 World's Fair. Walt Disney New York World's Fair exhibit at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. And then some um, articles that I found online included the Undercover Tourist, Secret History of It's a Small World, DVC Rentals, The History of It's a Small World, The Kingdom Insider, History of the Ride, It's a Small World, Wikipedia's article on It's a Small World, a couple of fun videos you might want to check out. Fresh Bakes, Disneyland Secrets, and History of It's a Small World, and Provost Park Pass, Disneyland It's a Small World Secrets Revealed. And Craig, of course, will have all of those links in our show notes. It's a long one this week. <laughs> long list this week. So, John, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Basically, BigFatPanda.com goes to my YouTube channel, but you can connect with me through anywhere with a DVC fan, DCL fan, and anything the Diz Unplugged, the Diz does, and of course, through your Twitter. Okay, you can send me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz, and you can connect with me, Craig and John, on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or disneyplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.